See, the Adventist message is different. The Adventist message is, uh, is, is a blessing to a world that is in dire need of hope. I was speaking this past week with a friend of mine who pastors in Michigan, and we were talking about what a privilege it is to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And the reason, I, the reason we were discussing this is because there are a lot of faith traditions. There are a lot of faith traditions. There are a lot of belief structures out there. And yet, the one that we believe, based off the Bible, is so airtight and so beautiful that it causes us to look into it almost with an endearment, almost just with, uh, with such joy, day after day after day, because of the beauty within it. And so that's what we're going to be unpacking, is the Adventist message for seven weeks. But before we can do that, the Lord knew that, that we needed to prepare our hearts and so he has sent us some words through Elder Grover, through Brother Gary, and through today that could almost be a three-part series in and of itself, even though none of us worked together. And so we're going to go ahead and pause and, and go to God in prayer as we look at a letter in the Bible that is pretty obscure but has a profound message. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we have gathered here this Sabbath... Because we believe that when we, when we show up to worship together, that you come and you, you commune with us and you speak to us. And Lord, we want to hear what it is that you are saying. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word now. Lord, help us to prepare our hearts in, the, in these short moments to receive your word. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I forgot my clicker, so I'm going to grab it real quick. But. So I have, to, I have to admit, because as Elder Grover stated, there's not a lot of uh, consistency in how to pronounce this small book in the New Testament. In fact, for eight years, my entire Christian experience, I pronounced it as Philemon. In fact, I went down to Oglethorpe, Georgia, and preached a sermon in that church through this letter, and the entire time I referenced it as Philemon. And the reason why I had heard that it was Philemon is because my professor at school pronounced it as Philemon. Well, that professor also taught me how to read Greek. And so this past week I said, you know, I'm going to go and use the skills he taught me and I'm going to go read it myself. Instead of just... And I found out that it's actually pronounced Philemon. According to the Greek. The E is a shorter E. It is not a long E. So... If anyone doubts, someone who was trained by my professor on how to read Greek disagrees with my professor, it's Philemon. So that's what we're going to pronounce it as today, okay, for just today, right? So, have you ever been on a trip that was uh, so terrible that you can't help but think back on it and just laugh? So two Christmases ago, I went on the worst family vacation that has ever happened in my whole life. And I should have known that it was going to be a terrible family vacation because of how it began. See, we were going on a cruise. Now, I've never, I'd never been on a cruise before. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a cruise. Oh, I don't know how you guys did it. It was a miracle that I made it through. To get on the cruise was such a process. So, my grandparents, 
they, they call us up and they're, they ask Chris and I, do we want to go on a cruise for Christmas with my cousins and my grandparents, my uncle and my aunt? And we're like, yeah, sure, we've never been on a cruise before, but sure, let's check this off our bucket list. I love the water, I love the ocean, it can't be that bad. So we leave from Atlanta to go to New Orleans, because that's where we're going to leave from. Except for two weeks before we're leaving, the cruise ship that we're going to be getting on gets backed into by another cruise ship. And so we're kind of wondering, wait a second, are we, are, is the cruise going to still happen? Yes, the cruise is going to still happen. They will work round the clock, but they are going to repair the ship, and we're going to leave. And I'm already thinking, man, is this like, am I going to have a Titanic story here, where we're going to get out on the water and run into something because the ship backed into another ship? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And so we leave from Atlanta to go to New Orleans. And we get to New Orleans, and we meet up with my uncle and my aunt and my cousins. But my youngest cousin is, ha is feeling sick and having some abdominal pain, and so she has to go to the emergency room. And she's probably, how old would you say Ava is? About eight, seven? So at the time, she's about seven, eight, and she's in the emergency room, and she might have to have surgery. So now we're wondering, well, are we still having a cruise? We should have known after, after the ship got backed into, and now there's this, that we probably should just call it. But, you know, hey, we're, we're, we persevere in my household, right? So, so we're sitting in this hotel room, and my uncle, my aunt, and my cousin are at the hospital. And we're all kind of frantically trying to figure out what's our game plan here. How are we, how are we getting on this, on this boat? How are we going on this relaxing family vacation that we all need to get a tan over Christmas, to come back and just look like we just were at a spa for the whole time? How are we going to get that? And, and when you're in a stressful situation, right, sometimes areas of your character that you didn't know were there come out. And I'm the oldest cousin in the room, and there's my grandparents. And so I'm, the, my grandparents look super stressed. My cousins are, my, some of my cousins are just like, well, we got to do this, and they got to do this, and got to do this, and got to, and all over the place. And I finally was like, this is what we're doing. And I just, just grabbed the whole situation by the reins, and we start shuttling family members to the port. We take an entire car of just luggage. I... I'm going to say this even though it's on, on camera. We filled the entire car with too many people that didn't have seatbelts to get to the port because we were working with what we had. And we get there, and we're still waiting to figure out, are my aunt and uncle and my youngest cousin going to be able to come? But because we're going to international waters, if my aunt and uncle don't come, we have to get legal paperwork so my grandparents can be the guardians of my other cousins. So now, not only are we shuttling everyone everywhere, we're also trying to track down notaries and get things notarized. And I mean, it's, it was such a process. It was the most stressful three hours of my entire life. And then we find out, we get to the hospital, and as a pastor, I know how to navigate a, a hospital. So I look, and I, I know exactly where we are on the chart that kind of, you know, is very confusing at first. And, and then we, we go into the room, and I just start walking past everyone because I'm just getting to my cousin because I, I got the paperwork. I need the signature so that we can get on the cruise. And we get there, and as I walk into the hospital room, the doctor walks in and says, my cousin is okay. She just has some, I don't even know what the word was. But she's going to be okay, doesn't need surgery, she'll be discharged within the hour. And I look at my clock and I say, okay, if she's discharged within the hour, 
we have 25 minutes to get from the hospital to the boat. That's doable. Not to mention that the, the boat is about 30 minutes away from the hospital, but you know, we, speed limits are recommendations, so you just go ahead and we'll make it, right? We're making, after, after this whole process, we're making it on the ship. And we did. And we get there, and you would think relaxation is going to start. Except, my first night on the boat, I remember going to sleep, excited to wake up because I'm going to open up the curtains in our room and I'm going to see the ocean. So I wake up in the morning, I was so excited, Carissa like, saw me pop up, I'm normally not somebody that pops up, and I open the curtains and there is New Orleans. We have not left. Because they are still working on the ship that got backed into around the clock. In fact, my family is closer to the construction so they can hear the construction the whole time. It was a nightmare. I can't think of one positive other than this. This is the one highlight that I had the entire cruise. Every morning, we'd go sit down and we'd have breakfast and I would order the same thing. It was so delicious. It made your taste buds just almost like leap up and almost dance, okay, because of how delicious it was. It was my oasis in chaos for breakfast. It was a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. Do you know how good freshly squeezed orange juice is? I mean, it's life-changing. If you haven't had it, I encourage you. Tell your parents, Go to the grocery store tomorrow. Simply Orange is pretty amazing, especially if there's some mango thrown in. But, you know, hey, just the regular, freshly, get some oranges, just, just cut it in half and just squeeze it into a glass. Life-changing. But isn't it fascinating that in the midst of so much chaos, when so many things about our characters were coming out because we were being pressed, I found relaxation in a fruit that when pressed, it made the best juice. I think for many of us over the past however long, for some time we've been dealing with situations where we've been feeling pressed. And so because we've been feeling pressed, some things about ourselves that we might not have known or some things that we might have been able to conceal pretty easily have come out into the open. We've been pressed, and so what's on the inside of us has come out. And because of that, there might be some relationships that are slightly not as strong as they used to be because of some things that came out. And so what can a small, very obscure letter in the New Testament teach us about forgiveness and reconciliation when some of what's on the inside of us comes out and it hurts those around us. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philemon, or Philemon, sorry. See, it's a bad habit. Eight years. Habits die hard. If you want to turn with me to Philemon, the only chapter. I'm going to try and get this working here. Cool. 
Philemon, page 1195 in the Bible, uh, underneath the seat. We find a letter that is different than all other New Testament letters. And it's written from Paul, but it's not Paul addressing a church per se, although he includes the entire church in the letter. But it's not Paul saying, hey, uh, church, here are the issues that you're dealing with as a church, and so I'm going to address them with the gospel. That's not the, the purpose of this letter. In fact, because this letter is so radically different, there was so much controversy over, should we include it within Scripture? Should we include it within the Bible that we now know as the Bible? Because it just seems so obscure. And yet, what a profound message it has for us. So, Philemon, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says... Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Philemon is, is a wealthy individual. He has a church in his home, which means that he's He's in the upper class. He's not middle class. He's not lower class. He's, he's upper class. And he lives in the town of Colossae. And Colossae is, uh, is in Asia Minor. It's in the area of Galatia. It's next to, um, it's, it's kind of next to the, the second Antioch. Um, Colossae, we have a letter to Colossae in Colossians where Paul writes to the church in Colossians, a separate church. But here, in Philemon, he's writing to specifically Philemon, but including this church. But Paul is writing it from Rome. So look at the distance. If Colossae is over there in Asia Minor, Rome is going to be over here. And so there's some distance that has to happen in order for this letter to get there. But Paul is writing, and he shows us the reason for writing this letter in verse 8. So Philemon, chapter, the only chapter, verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus." I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So Paul is basically saying, hey, Philemon, you, you have a house church. You're, you're, you're in the upper class. You're in the top 1% in Colossae. And here you are. I'm sending back to you this individual. His name is Onesimus. And I met Onesimus because I was ministering to Rome under house arrest. And somehow I ran into this individual named Onesimus. In fact, the text indicates that Onesimus actually robbed Philemon. He robs him. We know that because he says in verse 18, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And so here's Onesimus, and he, he has 
clearly done something to offend or hurt Philemon and then fled. He's a runaway slave. And as a runaway slave in that time, if he was caught, he would be killed. He'd be killed. That society did not have any, any place for runaway slaves. And so Onesimus, think about the psychology that must cause a slave to flee when they're living in the household of a Christian man who has a church in their house. Clearly there was something that was rocky or tumultuous to where Onesimus flees. And he goes to where the, the best place to go. If you're going to be a runaway slave, where are you going to go? You're going to go where there's a lot of people, to where you can kind of just blend in with the crowd. Right? You're going to go where there's an underground. You're going to go where there, there is, a, uh, is a safe haven where you can kind of just get by. That's where you're going to go. And so Onesimus goes to Rome. And as he gets in Rome, perhaps he starts... I mean, he's, he's a runaway slave, so he's always looking over his shoulder. Anytime somebody enters the room, he's wondering, is this a person that I've seen before? I mean, he's trying to, to live his life as best as he can as a free man, and yet he knows that at any moment he could lose it all. Because if he gets found, he will die. And he hears of this wise man named Paul. And Paul just speaks differently. Paul's not like other leaders. Paul is over here proclaiming these amazing truths that there is a God that will forgive you. That there is a God that loves you beyond you can even comprehend. There is a God that has done so much in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, that if you just receive Him, you can have a new life. And so Onesimus hears this somehow, either through direct teaching of Paul at the beginning, but eventually it leads him to have a relationship with Paul. And can you imagine what Onesimus' face would say when Paul says, you've, you've been converted, you've been ministering to me, I'm going to give you this letter and I'm going to send you back to Philemon. <laughs> can you imagine? You ever, you, you ever think about how being a Christian is supposed to make your life better? Like, once you become a Christian, you, you have no more hardship. Once you become a Christian, you don't have to worry about stress anymore because you got your friend Jesus, right? And he just gives you joy all the time. And yet, here is Onesimus. He's been converted. He's accepted the gospel. And here is Paul giving him a death sentence by saying, take this letter and take it back to Philemon. Can you imagine the turmoil that Onesimus must have thinking, wait, 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 what? I've been duped. There's, there's no way you want me to go back to the master that I robbed and fled from. There's no way, Paul. Why, Paul, what are you doing here? And yet, that's exactly what Paul does. In fact, Ellen White says this, that it was a severe test for this servant thus to deliver himself up to the master he had wronged. But he had been truly converted and he did not turn aside from his duty. It was his responsibility to go and seek reconciliation with an individual that he had wronged. That was his responsibility. He has been converted. He's growing in Christ. And yet Paul isn't like, here's your Bible reading plan. Paul isn't like, here's your fasting plan. Here's your prayer plan. Here's your tithing schedule or your tithing plan. No. 
the next step for you, Onesimus, is to go and be reconciled. To go and seek reconciliation and forgiveness from one that you have harmed. And so, he goes. And we know he goes because we have the letter in our Bible. If he doesn't go, how does this letter get there? Because Paul is sending Onesimus. He says, in verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India, after he had spent a long missionary career in India, he comes back to the West, and he sees the state of the church in the West, and this is what he says. He says, how can the church declare with any authority the restoring and reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus when there is too little reconciliation and too much hostility within the body that claims allegiance to his reconciling power? How does the church have authority when what we preach, we don't practice? I mean, I, I'm not a sales guy, but if somebody is trying to sell something to me, and they use it in an example, and it doesn't work, I'm not buying it, right? Oh, but it was the one time. It doesn't matter. It might even be just the one time. That's just, maybe that's just a bad event, right? But I'm still not purchasing it. There's just no way. And so why would I believe a message that is rooted in being reconciled when the body that proclaims that message is not reconciled? And so Onesimus is told, go back to Philemon. But this concept of reconciliation is nothing new. See, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be what? Reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. This is Jesus. He's giving this teaching. It's the only sermon that we have of Jesus in Scripture. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching about anger. What happens when you get angry? Now, is it okay to be angry as Christians? Paul says, you can get angry, just don't let it lead you into sin. And so it's okay to get angry, but when we get angry, what happens? Sometimes, some of the things from within us come out. Right? I'm, I'm super guilty of that. I mean, I, there are things that I've said that, that just came from a place where I was like, oh, wow, I did not know that was there. And I had to go and, and spend some time with God about it. Because I, that was a blind spot for me. I wasn't even aware. And, and I've had to, in, in experiences, go and, and seek reconciliation. In fact, probably the most powerful story of reconciliation that I have is from the night before I came and preached here for the very first time before I was ever even going to be the pastor here. See, we had been dealing with something that was, that was weighing on Carissa and I as a family. We had been dealing with something that was, uh, it, it, it was manipulative, it, it just was not good, and it was causing a lot of stress. And Sabbath is coming, and, I, and I'm, I'm trying to spend some time praying about the sermon that I'm going to preach here, because I, I want to bring a word from God here a, a year ago, in January. And this verse just hits me across the head. How can I go and worship when I know that there's something that I have with another brother in the faith? How can I get up and proclaim the reconciling power of Jesus when I know that there is something wrong with a brother in the faith? And so I called the individual. And I, 
gave an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in a reconciling way to where it was not, hey, you hurt me, and so I'm telling you that you're wrong, and you have to, you have to repent because I'm in the right. No, it was, I want to be able to have you back as a brother. I want to be able to work with you. I don't want to be against you. It's not, it's not us and them. It is us and hopefully future us. And so I called the individual up, and we had a conversation. And as we closed that conversation, we prayed. And I was thankful because I had gained a brother. But you know how difficult that is? It's not easy. It's, it is tough. Let's just be honest. It's super tough. It's not fun. It's scary. But Christ says, look, if you're getting frustrated, if you're angry, and then, you're, and then you come and you're presenting your sacrifice there, and you realize that there is something that you have against a brother, leave your sacrifice, the sacrifice that points to Jesus being our Savior. Leave that sacrifice and go and be reconciled to your brother first. Uh, Jesus goes on in, in Matthew chapter 18 where he gives us this chapter on church discipline. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault where? In private. If he listens to you, you have one your brother. Notice the language. It's not even about right and wrong. It's about getting back that relationship. Do you want to know what it means to be reconciled? It means to restore back to a state of harmony. That's what it means to be reconciled, to restore back to a state of harmony. Do you want to know what our harmony is as Christians? It's the mission of the gospel. That's the harmony. This is a place where it doesn't matter who, where you come from. It doesn't matter your background. This, we, we have such a wonderful church. We have a diverse church of many different ethnic backgrounds. We have a church of many different jobs. We have a church of, of different genders. We have a, a church of different age groups. We, as the, seven, as the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're the most diverse church in the world. We are a part of a fantastic church family. And so we have such a, a, a responsibility to go out and proclaim a gospel that allows us to come from many different backgrounds to worship as brothers and sisters. And so Jesus shows us that in reconciliation, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Ellen White says this, and, and it, it, this is one of the most powerful passages in Desire of Ages. She says, Christ was treated as we deserve. Have you ever had an experience where it's really hard to forgive? Like that individual did that one thing that, that just is, is almost unforgivable? They've hurt you, like legitimately hurt you. It's not like they accidentally poked and they weren't aware that they hurt you. It's no, they, they intentionally did something that hurt you and it's hard to forgive them. You ever have an experience like that? What brings someone to be able to forgive when somebody has intentionally done something that hurt you? Well, it's understanding that Jesus was treated as we might want them to be treated so that they don't have to be treated that way. Because we were treated the way that other people might want us to be treated so that we don't have to be treated that way. Ellen White says, Christ was treated as we deserve. We being everyone. Christ was treated as we deserve, that he might 
that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share, that we might be justified by His righteousness, by His life, in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His. With His stripes we are healed. By His wounds we are healed. When we understand that Jesus stood in the place of our enemy and was treated as our enemy deserves, there's actual justice. Jesus took the penalty. So there is justice. It's not like there's no justice there. Uh, Brother Gary preached last Sabbath how Jesus is the victim. We're not the victims. Jesus is the victim. He was treated as our enemy deserves when they have hurt us. I grew up in a home where I had a family member that was verbally abusive for a very long time. To the point where I thought I was only good at one thing. That was it. I had no confidence about anything except for one thing, and even that confidence was faked. I had no confidence. I thought that I was terrible at everything. I didn't, I didn't think that I had much to offer the world. And that's what led me into a, a very dark moment in my life. And when I became a Christian, one of the very first things that I had to face was, was I going to be willing to forgive this family member? What's my responsibility? What is my duty as a Christian who now believes in a reconciling God when this individual has caused me years and years of not only trauma, but pain? What do I do? It was this passage that allowed me to forgive because I had to recognize that Christ was treated for the sins that they committed against me so that they don't have to. When we understand how much God has forgiven us and forgiven the one who has hurt us, it allows us to reach into a forgiveness that is divine and godly, a holy forgiveness. Not a forgiveness that says, it's okay. You ever have somebody come up to you? It's kind of awkward when they ask for forgiveness, right? You almost don't know what to say. And so you say, it's okay. When it's not okay, you don't have to say, it's okay. You can just simply say, I forgive you. Because as a Christian, we can acknowledge that Christ took that sin. Christ took that punishment so that they don't have to. Because that's the Christ that we proclaim. That's the Christ that Paul preached. That's the Christ that brought Onesimus into the faith. In fact, this is what Paul says as he preaches to the Romans. Now, where is he writing Philemon from? From Rome. And so this is the letter that was circulating in the area that perhaps Onesimus had heard. And he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When we were the individual that was hurting God, he forgave us and sought reconciliation with us. In fact, he descended from being the creator to become creature to show us reconciliation. He went through great lengths, even at expense of himself, to seek reconciliation and forgiveness for us. That is the God that Paul proclaims. We forgive and seek reconciliation when we realize how forgiven we are by Christ and reconciled to God through him. When we understand what we are offered, it allows us 
to then go out into our world that is very hurtful, that wants to take every ounce of hope from us, and it allows us to say, I forgive you. It allows us to get on the phone and say, hey, brother so-and-so, or hey, sister so-and-so, you said this, and it kind of hurt my feelings. I wanted to talk with you about it because I wanted to get back into a harmonious state because we have a mission. We have a very important mission, which is to take the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus, to all the world. And how can we do that if we're going to show up every Sabbath and sit in the same pews and never say hi to each other? How are we going to do that when we show up every Sabbath and we, we just, we, we, uh, we grit our teeth to say happy Sabbath and, and, and then we go back during our week, but we never pray for one another. We never check in on one another. What authority do we have then as Christians if we're not living a reconciled life? We forgive and seek reconciliation when we realize how forgiven we are by Christ and reconciled to God through him. That's why uh, Jesus says uh, in, in, a, in a parable, uh, she who is forgiven much will love much. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, we're able to extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 18 that uh, is, is perhaps the greatest teaching on forgiveness outside of the cross. It's in page 978 in your Bibles, starting in verse 21. Peter had come up to Jesus, and he's wondering to what extent are we called to forgive? What is our responsibility as Christians? Because the Pharisees had manipulated who God was, this image of God. They'd, they'd manipulated God's forgiveness to the point where they were teaching this. If somebody sins against you three times, you can forgive them. But if they hit that fourth time, that's it. All bets are off. I hear that and I say, man, my sister could have stopped forgiving me for a long, like a long time ago if it was just three. Because, I mean, as a younger sibling, I mean, I just sometimes would stoke the pot, right? I mean, sometimes it was just fun to get your siblings riled up just to see what they would do. It was almost like a case study, like I was a little psychologist before I was an adult, right? You siblings know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about, right? If it was three, have mercy on me, right? But Peter comes up to Jesus in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he adds, he goes above the Pharisees. He says up to seven times. Peter's probably thinking, this is the one time I get the, I get the quiz question right. This is the one time I have it, seven. That, that's, a, that's a sign for, for perfection, for completeness, right? The seventh day, a complete week, a perfect world. And so he says, how many times should I, should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times seven. Oh, sorry, 70 times seven. But up to 70 times seven. 77 times. Is that a literal? Are we supposed to be keeping track? And Ah, oh, man, I forgave this person 76 times, and so they got one more strike. No, Jesus is basically saying God's forgiveness is unlimited. And so our forgiveness should be unlimited. We should not be keeping track of wrongs. In fact, love keeps no record of wrongs. And we're called to even love our enemies. And so in verse 23, Jesus wanted to illustrate this to Peter and perhaps the other disciples listening. And so he says, For this reason, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. Man, that, I mean, debt is debt, right? You don't have enough? Sorry. Verse 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. And then Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Jesus doesn't mince any words. If you have an unforgiving spirit, if you have an unreconciling spirit, that's not of Jesus. It's not. Jesus says an unforgiving spirit will actually prevent our prayers from being heard. Father, uh, uh, Father, hallowed be your name. When your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our, each, uh, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass amongst us or against us. And here is Paul. And Paul has met this runaway slave, Onesimus. And he writes this letter and says, Onesimus, I need you to take this back to Philemon. I need you to take this back to your master that you hurt. I need you to take it. And Onesimus does. He takes the letter and he goes and he treks across from Rome to Colossae. Can you imagine the stress that Onesimus must have had knowing that he was perhaps going to hand a letter and Paul says in the letter, look, I'm not going to charge you. I'm not going to command you, even though I could. I'm not going to command you because reconciliation and forgiveness cannot be commanded. It has to come from love. And so he, he could, it would, but it would be an obligation. But you should. In fact, whatever he owes you, you can charge it to my account. You can put it on my tab. Carissa and I have a, have a, a family friend. This is going to be, I'm sorry. Um, this is perhaps one of the most embarrassing stories. So, so Chris and I have a family friend, and... Every time we go out to eat when we were in college, they understood we're broke college kids. Right? We're broke college kids. So, of course, they're working adults, the parents, and so they would pick up our tab. And we never fought it because we're broke college kids. Right? So I'm gone, and Carissa and her sister are eating with our family friends, and Carissa means to say, hey, we've been waiting for you to pray which is, you know, a Christian thing to do, right? Like, we, we want you to, 
to come, get, put your food down so we can pray together. But instead, Carissa says, we've been waiting for you to pay. <laughs> just, just, we weren't going to buy this. We weren't going to buy this $30 meal unless we knew that, you know. But can you, I mean, it changes things when you know that it's going on somebody else's tab, right? Paul says, look, whatever Onesimus owes you, you can charge it to me. I will, I will repay. Paul works as a tent maker and he's in prison. You think he has a lot of money? No, he doesn't. But yet he's still saying, look, I will go through whatever lengths it takes to pay off whatever he owes you because he's my brother. He's hurt you, but he's my brother. He's been converted. He's accepted the gospel of Jesus. He's my brother. And you should receive him back because he's your brother too. Can you imagine the stress Philemon must have thought? Here comes this slave who ran away, who robbed him. What would Philemon's non-Christian neighbors think when, he sees, when, when they see Philemon back in the household? Not dead, not being killed, not being tortured, not being imprisoned. What would they think? Oh, but it might cloud my witness if I allow him to come back and, and be a part and I don't hold him accountable. And, eh. Can you imagine the stress Philemon must have thought or felt? He's a part of the upper class. He has expectations to uphold. And yet, we know that he forgave Onesimus because Paul brings up how wonderful Onesimus' ministry is later in the Bible. And so here's Philemon, and here's Onesimus, at odds with one another, and yet the gospel of Christ is, is more powerful. The gospel of Christ allows forgiveness to happen and reconciliation to happen. And we as Christians, what authority do we have if we're not willing to seek reconciliation and forgiveness with those that we might hurt? It takes humility, and it takes an understanding that we're not a victim, and they're not a victim. Jesus is the victim. But if we don't reconcile, if we don't forgive, if we don't come together as a family, then when we bring other people into our family, what authority do we have? Onesimus took the letter, and he brings it to Philemon, and forgiveness happens. And so I don't know if you've been pressed over the past however long, a year, four years, five months, two months, a week, it, it doesn't matter. We live in a pressing world. And sometimes what's on the inside of us sneaks out into reality. And once it's out, you can't bring it back in, almost like when toothpaste comes out. You can't put it back into the bottle. And so what do we do? That's when we have to go and seek reconciliation and seek forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, we as brothers and sisters have a united purpose. And that is to proclaim the most beautiful story, the truest story ever told the story of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this letter in the New Testament, in a rather obscure letter where uh, there, there's even debate about how to pronounce its name, but there's no debate about the contents that are within it because it is so evident that it is about your gospel and your grace, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, Lord, when we seek reconciliation, what are we reconciled to? 
We're reconciled to a, a greater family, a family where uh, an individual with a PhD can be discipled by a high schooler, a family where uh, an, a doctor can come and learn from, from uh, a Sabbath school teacher. Lord, we're in a family that's upside down. We're in a family that is of redeemed individuals that have been reconciled by your blood, and that reconciliation permeates every relationship that we have within this family. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us over the past week, over the past month, over the past year, whatever it is, show us where some areas from within us snuck out that we weren't aware of, that caused pain to others, and inspire us through your Holy Spirit to go and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. And Lord, go before us to, to the person or the persons that we might have to have conversations with and soften their hearts so that we can be restored back to brothers and sisters so that when we tell other people about this church family, we have authority to be able to say we've been reconciled to one another and our bonds are deeper than blood because it's actually your blood that unites us. Lord, we thank you, and we thank you for Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen.